is a very interesting book. It is a book, as uh, I mentioned in the prayer, one that, that we've, we've thought about for those of, of us who have grown up going to church and going to Sunday school and, and vacation Bible school. Uh, we have thought about these words and thought about this story and heard these words read over and over again. And what we want to do tonight is to go again over these, these small, uh, uh, very, uh, very small chapters out of Jonah. There are just four of them. And, and think about the message of Jonah before we go home tonight. Uh, outside of the book of Jonah itself, there's not much that is known about Jonah in the Old Testament. Outside of a couple of verses that you find in the New Testament, there's really only one Old Testament verse outside of the book of Jonah itself that even mentions this prophet. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamat to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. Now, this, this verse does give us uh, really not a whole lot of information outside of his hometown and who he was the son of. It, it does, though, give us a bit of a time frame for the ministry of Jonah. In the early years of Jeroboam II, Jonah predicted that the borders of Israel would expand, which they did do, as attested by uh, the prophecies of Amos and Hosea that we've been looking at this morning and the week, uh, last week. This then places Jonah before Amos and Hosea. By the time you get to Amos and Hosea, the, the borders have expanded. Jonah is predicting that. So before Amos and Hosea, there is Jonah, which I would put probably in the earliest part of Jeroboam II's reign. I would probably guess around 780 B.C., while Assyria is still weak and still in that, that phase where they are beginning to ascend in power and they're leaving Israel alone. Israel is able to grow economically, politically, and militarily during this time. Now, that's kind of the framework here. About 780, 775 B.C., right in that area. Now, the gist of this small book is Jonah's struggle with God's compassion for other people beyond Israel. And not just other people in general, but specifically the enemies, people that, that Jonah and, and really probably everybody in Israel would have considered to be an enemy. It's compassion, not just for people who are outside of my borders, but people I consider to be an enemy. And Jonah, as a Jew, would have no problem with God's compassion toward the nation of Israel. And, and Jonah personally, in this book, has no problem with God showing him mercy when he is thrown overboard to quiet the storm as he leaves Joppa on his way to Tarshish. But Jonah does put limitations on God's compassion. And Barbara Lamont, uh, or excuse me, Anne Lamont once said that you know that you have made God in your own image when God hates the same people that you do. That's another way of saying that where we have compassions, uh, limits on compassion, that's usually where we place those limits on God's compassion. Thus, we have made God in our own image and thus created an idol. Jonah has limitations on God's compassion. And there's the irony. Jonah helps the sailors who are from, a, from, a, from some other country. They are not Jewish. And he helps the Ninevites change their view of God. And it is especially the mercy that is shown to the Ninevites that just really gets into Jonah's craw and just really is upsetting to him and really helps him to become or causes him to become a little bit emotionally unhinged at the end of the book. And that's the part or the point of this book being in the Old Testament. Thomas Schreiner has written very recently a book called The King in His Beauty, which is a theology of the entire Bible. 
And he writes something, I, th I think, very interesting about the placement of Jonah right after Obadiah, which is a prophecy against the wickedness of Edom. And he writes about the book of Jonah by saying that Jonah takes us in a very different direction. Reading the prophecies of judgment upon the wicked could sow in Israel a wrong understanding. After all, the promise of Abraham was that the nations would be blessed through him. And we have seen in the prophets many examples of Israel being judged for its own wickedness. Jonah, in wanting to see Nineveh destroyed, represents a natural inclination in Israel. But it is an inclination that must be repudiated. I think he's absolutely right. Jonah is in, this, in, is in the Old Testament to remind us of so many things, but primarily that God has no limit on His compassion when it comes to the people that He wants to see in His creation be saved and to come to Him. Now, it's a pretty short book, as you know. It's only about four very, very short, small chapters, but we can unfold it in three movements. Those movements are going to be this. The appointments, the re-engagements and the disappointments. The appointments, the re-engagements, and the disappointments. Now, let's begin with the first one of those three movements, the appointments. When we look at the first chapter, there are basically three appointments that we're going to see. Here's the first one, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and he's appointing him, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, you know as well as I do, sometimes the call of God is to a beautiful place. And sometimes it's to a place like Nineveh. Sometimes the call of God is to go to a beautiful place, a place where life is easy, a place where the people are receptive. And sometimes it's to go to a place like Nineveh. And Nineveh represents the call of God to go to the very place that you don't want to go, wherever that might be. And it's different for everyone. But for Jonah, Nineveh represents that place that is going to cause him to really struggle in his faith with obedience to the call of God. Nineveh represents the ministry that God calls you to go to, but you don't want to do it. Why? Because Nineveh is dangerous. And Nineveh is cruel. And Nineveh is dark. And Nineveh is paganesque. Now, I don't know if that's a word. I may have just made that one up. But you get the gist. It's a place of the pagan people. And Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh, but he goes in the opposite direction. Jonah goes to Tarshish in disobedience. And with all disobedience, there is a fallacy. That's why we do it, because of a false way of thinking. But the disobedience fallacy is this. God will not catch the disobedient. That I can go ahead and do this because God's not going to catch me. I can go ahead and do what I want to do because God is looking elsewhere. That's the fallacy. God will not catch the disobedient. And so Jonah, believing that, goes down to Joppa. He boards a boat to Tarshish where we find now the second appointment. Verse 4. Then the Lord appoints or sends a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, uh, Joppa to Tarshish was about big boats going a, a long distance, loaded down with all kinds of cargo. And if you are a guy that owns boats and you're a guy that is into shipping, you're going to make sure that you have the best, most professional, toughest sailors that you can find to, to man those boats. And this, this, this storm is so fierce that they begin to despair and they begin to cry out to their own God. Now, the irony of the story is that Jonah is down at the bottom of the boat, sleeping. He's just down there sawing logs. 
Finally, the captain, in taking, I guess, account of the number of people that are on board and making sure that nobody has been swept overboard in case they have to give an accounting of, of some disaster, the captain approaches him down there in the bottom of that boat and he says in verse 8, how is it that you're sleeping? Don't you know that we're about to perish? Maybe you should call to your own God. Which leads to him going up on the deck and the men beginning to cast lots with their mates to see who is responsible for the storm. And when they cast the lots, who turns out to be responsible for the storm? It's Jonah. And Jonah convinces them to throw him in the sea. It's a raging sea. They don't want to do it, but it's for their own good. He tries to convince them to throw him in the sea in order for them to be saved, but they don't want to do it because they show compassion to the guy that's creating the storm. But finally, after rowing as hard as they can and seeing that the boat is about to break up, they throw him into the sea and the sea stops its raging. And then in verse 16, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to Him. Which now brings us to the third appointment, which is now that Jonah is sinking down, down, down in the middle of the sea, down, down, down to the bottom, there is the third appointment, verse 17. The Lord appoints or provides a great fish or a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Which leads us now to the second phase of the story, which is about re-engagement. And here's where the story gets very interesting. Jonah is three days and nights in the belly of what John Willis, many of you had him as an Old Testament professor at ACU, he is in what uh, Willis called, Dr. Willis calls, a special God-created Jonah-swallowing fish. And while he's inside of this fish, it might have been a well. It's not called a well. It's just called a great fish. And while he's inside of this great fish, Jonah begins to pray. And Jonah prays like a lot of us do, which means that Jonah only begins to pray when he hits bottom. Uh, Jonah's got so much to do. I mean, he's got to get away from God. He's got to go and protect Israel's interests. He's got so much to do. He's got to get to this boat at Joppa and go all the way to Tarshish. And finally, God has driven him to the bottom of the sea. And that's where he begins to pray. And Jonah begins to pray out of the Scriptures to God. And on the third day, he is delivered. Now, I want you to circle in your Bible that word third day. It is a, a, a word, it, it's a phrase that shows up all the time in Scripture. Just a couple of examples. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham is told by God, I want you to go to the region of Mount Moriah and offer your son Isaac. And it's on the third day that, that Abraham sees what? The mountain. And then in Genesis chapter 31, Jacob has fled the camp to try to get away from his, his, his father-in-law Laban. And Laban finds out that Jacob has split from the camp on the third day. Genesis chapter 40, the chief cupbearer that is in prison with, with uh, the Pharaoh's baker with, with, with uh, Joseph finds out on the third day that he is going to be released from prison. And in Genesis chapter 42, Joseph lets his brothers go back to Israel and get their youngest brother in three days. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 11, the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai and meets with the people of Israel on the third day. When you go to Leviticus, on the third day, there are requirements for the leftover sacrifices that have been, have been stipulated by God. And the third day shows up all over Scripture, right? And on the third day, the fish vomits Jonah on the beach. And Jonah is a prophet of God, which means that he is engaged in doing the will of God and speaking the words of God. And now that he is on the beach covered in whatever that fish has eaten over the last couple of days, Jonah re-engages with God's will. And in chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A, a visit required what? Three days. There it is again. And on the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Shortest sermon in the Bible. But because God is up to something in this entire book, the most unexpected thing happens. Here is a prophet who is running away from God, running in the opposite direction of the place that God has called him to. He gets on the boat. God has appointed him to preach. He doesn't want to do it. So God has to appoint a storm to bring him to the bottom of the sea. While he's at the bottom of the sea, God appoints a fish to swallow him, to bring him back to Nineveh. He vomits him out onto the beach. And now the prophet, who has been appointed to preach those words, is engaging that city and that call of God. And he goes into that city. He preaches in Hebrew five words. Shortest sermon in the Bible. And the most spectacular thing happens. Beginning in verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, with compassion, turn from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did, God saw. When God, in looking down from His heaven, saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. It's an incredible thing. Which leads to the third phase of the book, which is the disappointments. And there's a couple. Nineveh repents and God forgives. They say we're going to give up all of our evil and God sees that and He relented from the fierce anger and the anvil of wrath that He was going to drop on them and He has compassion towards them and He forgives them. They repent of their violence and their aggression and their sin and they receive grace. Now you would think that Jonah would look at this and just be so overcome with amazement that he would fall on his face in praise of God. I mean, who has ever in their life seen 120,000 people with all of those animals go into a fast and go into a lament and go into a, a period of mourning for their spiritual state before God in such a way that the, the imminent danger of, of destruction and devastation and obliteration by, by God's wrath and God's judgment is completely removed from them and God's grace pours down on that city. Now you would think that he would see this and just become so overwhelmed and so overpowered by the emotion of forgiveness and love and compassion, that he would fall on his face and praise God. It's the greatest spiritual achievement in his own personal history. Or anything that he's ever been involved in. Especially as a prophet in North Israel. But then there's this. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed what? It seemed what, church? Not just wrong, but very wrong. And he became angry. Nineveh's conversion looks like this great evil in the eyes of Jonah. 
It looks like a betrayal. It looks like God is being disloyal to Israel because He's showing compassion to all of these other people. People that Israel would consider to be the enemies of, of that nation. And in his thinking, this conversion, this great, this great outpouring of forgiveness looks like, like the worst thing. It looks like the greatest of evils in the eyes of Jonah. Now what we think is the big problem in the book of Jonah, which is what is God going to do with Nineveh? 120,000 people, they're going to become this fierce nation. The big problem is what is God going to do with the city? That big problem is actually not all that, beer, uh, all that big compared to the other problem, which is what is God going to do with Jonah? Imagine a Sunday morning where, let's, 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 just, let's just say a reasonable number, which would even great, though reasonable, I think even great by our standards. Let's say on Sunday morning, we have ten people that are baptized at the end of our assembly. What would you think if you saw people getting angry that these people were receiving the grace of God and turning to Him in repentance and being baptized so that their sins are washed away and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit? What would you think? What would your reaction be if you saw that kind of an outpouring of, of repentance and faith before God, but there were people around you that, that were just becoming so mad that they just wanted to die because I, I don't want to see those people get baptized. Jonah prays in chapter 2 while he's down there in the bottom of the ocean in, with the, in that fish. He says, oh God, let me live. And then in chapter 4, after this great conversion, he says, oh God, take my life. Don't let me live. I want to die. I'd rather die. I'd rather be dead than alive. And Jonah goes out to the east end of Nineveh and maybe waits for the Lord to strike Nineveh after all. Maybe it's 40 days. Maybe it'll mess up a little bit and God can really drop the anvil on him. And while he's out there and he's sitting down, it's kind of a sunny day, God appoints a vine to grow and to give him shade. And Jonah likes the shade. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, it's terrible for the skin to be out there and get sunburnt. And the next day, a worm is appointed, the next appointment by God, to chew the vine and the vine withers. And Jonah tells God again, I just want to die. I'd rather die than live. I don't want to live. And God says to him at the very end of the, of the book, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. In other words, here's this vine that you didn't really do anything to create. It, it just appeared and you like it, you love it, and you're so concerned about it, but you really don't have any investment in it. But you emotionally are attached to this vine. I see that. It was giving you shade now that it's gone. It's been destroyed. You're upset. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It's not been there all that long. But I can see how you would be upset about it. I mean, it's a plant. It's a beautiful thing. It gave you shade. But should I not have concern over the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? You see, the first disappointment is that Jonah could not rejoice in having the limits of his own compassion expanded to where they meet the borders of God's compassion for people, for human beings. The second disappointment is God with Jonah over the fact 
that Jonah, who did not work for a vine, did not plant the vine, did not tend the vine, did not cultivate the vine, didn't do anything about that vine. It was a miraculous thing. It just showed up one night. It was giving him shade, which was a wonderful thing. But then it died the next day. And he is so angry over the injustice of that that he wants to die. And God says, really, over a plant? But you can't feel that way over people? 120,000 people? God says, that's how I feel. How you feel about the vine is how I feel about the city of Nineveh. Full of people who are not much smarter than that vine. They don't know their right hand from their left. But I love them. The book of Jonah is a challenge to all people of God everywhere in every age to have compassion like God. And one day, a greater Jonah arrived. Gath-hefer, which is the, the hometown of Jonah, the son of Amittai, is just a stone's throw from another uh, son of a carpenter by the name of Jesus who was from Nazareth. Both of them were called to preach a message of repentance. There was, there was one day when... Jesus was in a boat out in the middle of the lake in the middle of a storm and the boat was in danger of swamping. And guess what Jesus is doing in the back of the boat? Just like Jonah who's in the bottom of a ship, Jesus at the back of the boat is sleeping. And the guys on that boat are afraid. They're not sailors like the ones on that boat. They're, they're fishermen. Most of them are fishermen. But they're still afraid. The boat is going to go down and we're going to perish. Can you do something about it? And he does. Peace be still. And then he turns to them and goes, Oh, that you would have a faith that would not sink. And where Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the fish as he came forth into Nineveh, whatever that looked like, Jesus came forth three days of resurrection from the tomb of the dead as a sign, first fruit of the resurrection. And he did not just pray that he might die. He actually did die in order for people like us, in order for people like us who are similar to the people of Nineveh to find the compassion and the forgiveness and the grace of God in our own life. And one of the challenges to us is, is, to, is, is, is to, to measure our own compassion in light of the greatness of the compassion of God when it comes to sharing our faith and, and sharing the goodness of being in the presence of God. But at the same time, it is a reminder that there's a greater Jonah who did not just pray that he might die, but actually did die in order for us to not die, but to live. We're going to sing a song right now. Ben's going to lead us in a hymn of praise. And some of our shepherds are going to come down here at the front and if there are ways that our church can minister to you tonight, maybe it's time for you to give your life to God. And in faith, through the things that Jesus has done and, and has won for you in victory on the cross, in faith, to be baptized and to have your sins washed away and to repent, to move your life in direction of God. Maybe that's what you need to do tonight. And if that's so, we want you to come down to the front. If there are other ways that we can minister to you and help you to become like our Master, as a disciple, always is conformed to the image of the Master to become more like Jesus through prayer, through counsel, through study, whatever it might be. Our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Come down and talk to them as we stand.